HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Ariel Arce. We'll talk to Ariel about wine, champagne, niche, niche, and a lot more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Straight out of Hell's Kitchen, Ariel Arce was a young gymnast, film student, and actress before she pursued a career in wine, champagne, and hospitality. She got her chops with Grant Ackett's in Chicago and Ravi DeRossi in New York before opening her first venue, Air Champagne Parlor. Ariel has since opened Buzzy Tokyo Record Bar, Niche Niche, and soon to open Social Club. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Ariel. Hi, thanks. Did I get that right? You did, except it's going to be Special Club. What did I say? Social Club. I screwed up. But it is going to be I Social knew I, Club called Special Club. I knew I was going to screw that <laughs> up, because in the last two days, I've called it like three, four things. 
All right, I want you to give our listeners a little context to who you are. So give us a quick background on your journey in life and wine okay. that got you to current, which is really we're sitting in the wine cellar of Nietzsche Nietzsche, and you're about to open Special Club right across the way. So tell me how you got here. It's been a long journey. Okay. <laughs> I've lived a lot of lives. Um, I, I really think that my journey of wine really started when, so I'm, I'm born and raised in Hell's Kitchen, but um, my mother was a good Jewish girl from Queens, and at the age of about four, she kind of had this breakdown moment where she was like, we can't raise our daughter in this neighborhood. The in first, Queens? No, we were in Hell's Kitchen. Oh, in Hell's Kitchen, so, okay. So um, she was like, I don't want my daughter going to a first language school of Spanish. I don't want her to start <laughs> testing at this very young age. Um, New York City was just like the most crime ridden. The neighborhood that we were in was prostitutes and crack whores. Like it was just a terrible place to raise a child. And so she was like, let's move to Connecticut, which we did what for year was three this? years. Um, well, I was born in 87, so around 91. Okay. Um, and so. And just for the record, where? In Connecticut? Uh, Weston, Connecticut. Okay. Nice, sunny, waspy Weston. There you go. And the the Jewish family moves out. Right. You uh, went from one, black, one you know? surus to another, <laughs> exactly. right? And um, within about two years, my mother was like, we're moving back to New York. Um, but during that time, they really tried to find a community there to fit in. And my parents joined the Newcomers Club, which you wouldn't know as a New Yorker, but the Newcomers Club is when all of the neighborhood gets together and brings in the community and serves blocked orange cube cheese and Ritz mm. crackers mm. and drinks Ravenwood Zinfandel. Okay. Um, but my parents started to have a love of wine at that time. Um, and that was kind of my very first exposure because there was kind of no rules in our household of what was right or wrong. There was always just try something. So at a young age, I was allowed to drink at the dinner table. My parents were always you had liberal parents. I had liberal parents, and they were yes, and an only and I was an only child. Yes, right. entertainers. Um, so I think that that was kind of the very first moment that I realized not that I loved wine, but just that I loved being around this moment of entertainment and what that could be and how everything was involved in that. It was music, it was food, it was wine. My father was an incredible cook. He's from New Orleans. Uh, my mother was an incredible entertainer. So um, that's kind of how I was raised. That'll and explain a lot of things towards the end of the interview. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it, it really comes full circle. A lot of people have brought it to my, to my attention, like unbeknownst to me, that so much of what I do now has so much to do with Right. You know, There's the influences. Youth, for sure. All right. So you get out of Connecticut. What happens? Um, I was in school in, in New York. I was a professional actor. Well, so we moved back to New York really because I had this grand idea that I told my mother that I wanted to be an actress. And she was like, you say you want to do all sorts of things. And she was like, you have to prove it. So she took me to the Comedy Cellar, which <laughs> does a youth performance, I guess, once a month. Um, and she was like, you have to get on stage and perform. And at the time, I was doing gymnastics. So I did this singing and dancing and somewhat gymnastics routine. At the and comedy cellar? At the comedy cellar. Um, and I won. <laughs> really? And she was like, okay, 
we can uh, we can explore this. And um, we had a friend at the time who knew Lauren Michaels, who was working at um, uh, SNL, and he was able to kind of introduce me to a bunch of agents. And we moved back to New York City really so I could pursue a professional acting career, of which I did from the age of about six to eighteen. And during that period, you were doing different things? Commercials, television. But going to school also? Going to school. And I was also doing gymnastics four hours a day, five days a week. So I was a relatively busy child. So there's more good training for this business. Yeah, I think it really, it taught me how to be a very uh, efficient, managed, and dedicated person. So you mentioned through your teens, obviously at some point, because you're not a famous actress now, that, that comes to an end. <laughs> so what happened? Yes, that yes. wasn't fair of me. I'm, I'm sorry. So what happens? I perform every night, don't you know? Well, yes, in a different way. And that's why I apologize. But no, of course. So, um, no, I, I mean, I became a, I, I'm a teenager. You know, I, I wanted to hang out with my friends. I wanted to smoke pot. I wanted to smoke cigarettes. I wanted to have a life, um, you know, and I, that you can't do that when you're doing gymnastics four hours a day gymnastics, and competing. way more than acting. Everything. It's like four hours a day, six For days a week. sure. Right. Okay. Um, sorry, Dad, I don't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, I was just, I was a teen. I wanted to enjoy my life. And so I slowly kind of realized that I wasn't going to go to college for gymnastics. Um, I was going to go to college for performance. So um, I applied to a bunch of schools and I wanted to go somewhere that um, felt like something I'd never experienced before. Um, So I ended up going to University of Michigan. I wanted Ivy. I wanted uh, sororities. I wanted like school spirit. And You're a Wolverine. I'm, yes, I'm a Badger. Okay. All right. That, I don't know that, anything that about our rivalry if we that, have one. That Northeast Jewish thing, you head out west and it's like a different world, especially when I went. But please continue. No, it totally was. Um, but, you know, it really, I think, is the most important thing to leave. Yeah. To leave what you know and go somewhere that you don't. Um, unfortunately, University of Michigan is just a bunch of kids from New York and a bunch of kids from LA and then a bunch of kids from Michigan who basically want to leave to go to New York or LA or Chicago. So um, I kind of found myself in my first year there, like really disappointed with my choice. I felt like I kind of left this mecca of culture, although Ann Arbor is like the most wonderful kind of beautiful little cultural space. um, It just didn't feel like enough. And I really wanted to leave. I had a lot of friends who went to UCLA and for whatever reason, I just ended up staying. And I found this really lovely community there within the theater department. Um, But when I thought about what my future was going to be, I didn't really feel like I was going to pursue a life in acting. That's the moment came during school? Yeah, I remember I had a professor. I had a boyfriend at the time, and we were going to Hawaii. His parents were taking us to Hawaii for the holidays. Um, and I had to leave early and she kind of said to me, essentially, if you leave to go on this vacation a day or so early and you miss this like last class, um, you're probably not cut out to be an actor. And I thought it was the most bizarre thing for someone to say to me because I was like, do you think that up until this point in my life, everything that I've done means that I'm not dedicated to this profession just because I'm going on this trip and and, and that's what this means. Like, it just felt like such a bizarre thing to say to a young person. And I was like, you know what? I guess I'm not. (laughs) And the next semester I came back and I transferred into uh, the producing, kind of the producing film department. And I studied 
basically behind the scenes for film, television, and theater, um, and realized that I really liked this idea of being, being able to put something on to produce something. And I didn't know if it would be in film or television or theater, um, even though that's what I knew at the time. But now that's kind of what I feel like I do. Well, there's career. a lot of connection to that and what you're doing now. So when does the point come where you start moving towards or into the industry? Right. So I graduated during the financial crash and everything that I did think I was going to do, which was you know, produce film, television, and theater, bad, bad um, just didn't exist right. for definitely a 21-year-old kid out of college. So I just started bartending. and I, Out of necessity. Out of necessity. Uh, out but of, you didn't mind the idea? No. I mean, I just... Do you I remember, remember first job? Yeah, of course. Well, actually, my first job was working for my dad, who was a food... Not boss. first job, first bartending job. First bartending job was at a place, well, it was in college. Um, oh, it wasn't Manhattan? It wasn't was Manhattan, no. Okay. But um, it was a place called Sunset Terrace. It was a catering job <laughs> at Chelsea Piers. And I lied so hard and told them that I knew how to bartend, which, you know, I knew how to pour <laughs> vodka in a glass and put tonic on top of it. Um, but within about six months, I was running the venue. Wow. Um, Quick learn, right? Well, I just noticed certain things like, why are you guys buying frozen foods when you could be buying fresh foods for less and you could prepare them so much better than you do and you charge all of this money? Why not get a better profit margin? Like I was thinking on a level that I didn't know I could think on. And I think it was the moment for me where I realized I was not in a place where I was going to learn and I needed to learn about this career that seemed very interesting to me. Um, and that's when I decided to move to Chicago. Why Chicago? Because, did you pick Chicago as a destination or that's where a job came up? No, it was a destination because after college, so many of my friends Right, you knew the Midwest there. pretty well. Yes. Right, there's and the connection. I had this, it's really a two-parter. My mother was very sick. It's why I came home after college. And so I came back to take care of her and she miraculously recovered. And we had had this kind of agreement where she was like, if I recover, you need to leave. Like, you can't just be in New York your whole life. Like, you went to college. You need to see the world. You need, I mean, I traveled a lot. I was very lucky. My parents really valued travel. But um, she was like, you need to go somewhere. And so Chicago felt like somewhere. Pretty amazing, right? That was safe. I wish I could be a mom like that. Oh. <laughs> right? I mean, if I can be half the mother my mom right. was. Um, but, yeah, so I decided to go there and... Um, again, lied to get a job. Did you have any job. connections or you just kind of... <laughs> Zero connections. And where was the first job? Um, it was a place called Hubbard Inn. Which oh, nothing. I don't know. I have no clue if it nothing still exists. fancy schmancy. No, I mean, I right, charmed so walk, my way out of a Craigslist ad. <laughs> walk me quickly through Chicago because in the end you worked at some good places. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I... I I worked there. I met a guy who was working at another restaurant. He brought me to that restaurant. At that restaurant, I met another person who was like, there's this place called the Aviary that's opening. You should probably apply there. I went. I saw a job that I wanted. The job wasn't available. I told them that was the job I wanted. <laughs> Two days later, I got the job. And it was Good running this place called The Office, which is this or was this little... 16 seat kind of speakeasy underneath uh, Aviary and Next. And it was a really special space because it inhabited the rarest 
forms of everything I'd ever seen. So wines, that, that was an exposure to the best of the best of the best know, in the business. Absolutely, at that level. And isn't there one in New York now in there the Mandarin? Is. Yes, the aviary in the office. Yes, right. And it's very different. So I, right. I like it. You know, I've I've been to both spaces, and I think that original space was where I just feel very connected to because it's where I basically got my fun foundation for everything. How long were you there? Um, about a year and a half. Okay. Um, Why do you decide to leave? Because I fell in love with champagne. There? Yes. Did they feature it? No. It, it wasn't like in New York now. You walk into Mayolino and it's like, oh my God, where is... No. You know, there was and no then we'll champagne get to, anywhere. But you fell in love anyway. I fell in love with champagne. And I fell in love with champagne. So, I mean, one of my questions was, when did your interest in wine and specifically champagne begin? And right it was at, it really was. Yeah. Just because it was around and you took no. notice, it no. wasn't even around. So no, just they, give me well, that they, moment for a second. It was there. I mean, they had a champagne list. It was concise and excellent. Um, but two things happened. The first thing was that Chef Grant Ackett's drinks Krug. I mean, he drank Krug at the time. I don't know if you still drank Krug, Chef, but you did then. So I remember at the end of it, there was a little bit left in the bottle, you know, like at the end of the night. And I remember, you know, tasting this wine and being like, I don't get it. Like, it's expensive. Wait, champagne or that particular Krug. for the money and all the hype? For it's like, I'm not, I'm not getting it. I don't get it. Okay. Like, why don't I get it? Right. And so... Then, on a very like separate moment, um, I tasted Solos for the first time, uh-huh. which I also didn't get. Okay. I was like, these things are so different to me. They, ta- they don't taste like what I think of champagne tasting like. And I don't even understand what I actually taste when I taste champagne. I need to get to the bottom of this. And so when you work in a place- Is that partially an untrained palate? 100%. Right, but who cares? But on you the know other what you hand, like and you know what you want to, you know, drink. On the other hand, I would say as recently as 8 to 10 years ago, nobody was talking about champagne. No. I agree. And even the best psalms or the best minds in wine weren't talking at the depth or the level or the complexity. They'll take credit for it now, for then, but they weren't Please. doing it then. I, I agree know. with you. I, I have to listen to it every day. I agree day. with you. But like, this was a moment for me where I was just like, I don't know where to learn more about this. The only thing that I know that I can do is taste. How am I going to taste? When you work at a place like, you know, a three Michelin star based space, you work six days a week on Sunday, you have your day off. And on that day, I would go to this store called Binnie's in Chicago, which it's has one of the best wine of, stores in America. It's their Wally's, selection of Binnie's, champagne Zaki. is incredible and every week I would buy a bottle of wine and at first I would buy something inexpensive that like I could before that was non-vintage you know just now to you understand. said wine not just champagne champagne and wine champagne which champagne. is wine no I know but I just wanted to clarify. and I yes of course but I always find myself having to do exactly that which is it's important to talk about champagne as wine it is a wine because you have to break what everybody thinks of champagne, which was this moment for me, which was, what is this thing? And it's wine. At the end of the day, it's wine with bubbles. And it was really important for me to learn my foundation and the fundamentals through taste and then to grow 
my knowledge. And so one bottle would turn into two bottles, two bottles would turn into vintage, vintage would turn into a tete de cuvee, it would turn into what is grower, what is big house. And I was like, I need answers. So I left to go work at a place called Pops for Champagne, which is a family owned. This is Chicago. In Chicago, yes. It's a family owned and operated champagne bar. They actually, the family just sold it. Last year, I believe, they had owned it for 37 years. But you were talking about how champagne wasn't on the scene, so they were a little ahead of the time where they were focusing on champagne? They were one of the only places in America. So this is my life. My life is so one lucky coincidence. you sought this out. I mean, yes. you have this interest and then love for champagne. I got to get out of here and hang there out with is. more champagne. You find the guy who's doing it. I will tell you that I... L- l- re- believe in life that there are no coincidences and that you can be incredibly lucky as long as you can kind of notice what's going on around you and I just happened to be lucky enough that I was in the place at the right time where there was this other place that I could go and study this thing that I was interested in luckily they never they never hire they hired their first person in eight years and there was a job opening and they hired me how long were you there two and a half years and is that the experience where you get to taste everything, learn it more? It changed my life. It did. I'll credit that place with changing my life. Did the Pops people have a knowledge of what they were doing? Craig Cooper did. Okay, so the there was somebody run, there. Who ran the program. Okay. And the other beautiful part was that because the employees that worked there had been working there for a solid 10 years, everybody had tried this mass amount of wine. And if if Craig didn't know something or if I didn't know something, I could ask anybody else that worked there, and they probably had tasted it at some point, they knew something about it. We would have monthly wine class where we were, you know, we'd open 12 bottles on a Saturday and we would just taste through style. We would talk about region, we would talk about terroir. I mean, we were talking about champagne on a level that people talk about now, Right. but no one was talking about this wine this way. Right. And it's amazing in it, Chicago too. And it was a gift. It was a it was a true gift to my career. And unfortunately, I probably would have stayed there for a very long time because the money was great, the education was great. But but the environment was terrible. The environment of Chicago or that particular place? Both. Both. But specifically. All right, that so place. we gotta get out of this. So let's Sorry. keep moving. No, 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 let's keep moving. So well, I, can I can I just make Yeah, one yeah, yeah. So that's Sorry. a defining champagne moment yes. for you. Yes. Um, and you explained why you had to get out. Say what you're gonna say and then keep going forward. Well the thing is is that that space and the environment that I was in and and I can elaborate more on that in the future, helped define the types of spaces I wanted to create moving forward, unbeknownst to me. So, the pop space? Yes. Was a big influence into how you look at things now? Yes. Okay. Maybe when we talk about each place, you could kind of work that in. All right. So you now leave, you decide to leave Pops. What happens? You leave Chicago to New Chicago York? Chicago for New York. What year are we at? Oh, God. Uh, we're in 2019, so 2014. Okay, so do you 13? come here with a job? No. Again? I never do. It's with you. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I... All right, so you come here and what do you do? I was just doing? going home, truly. Right. For starters. And to be frank, again, my mother was not well, so I need right. to go home. Um, and I figured I'd figure something out. I always did. And, again, like, 
one of the people that lives in my building happened to work at T. Edwards at the time. He knew some guy with a shop. Great on the importer. Upper, great importer. He knew someone with a shop on the Upper uh, East Side. That guy needed some part-time help. I went to go work for him. Um, then I applied for a job. How long were you there? Oh, I don't know, a few months. Okay. Um, went and then applied for a job where my life very much changed. Uh, it was this place called Omar's, which is not still there, which was a social, like a literally like a private membership club. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. They were looking for um, a service director. And it was the first time that someone was like giving me a job to do something where I really thought I could actually like make some impact. They, want, they were going through a review process. They wanted like somebody who felt really confident um, handling a staff and like dealing with the wine service in addition to right the idea wrong place or uh, I'm not sure if I was great for that job weren't ready uh maybe okay I mean I don't know if you're really ever ready for anything I'm the type of person who thinks that you can figure anything out if you put right. your head to it but um that's where I met some people that were really helpful for me professionally and personally so I met my ex-boyfriend there at the time who is chef Gret uh Greg Backstrom, who owns the restaurant Olmstead now. At the time, we Great literally, place. we were like two kids who had nothing to our names, you know? Okay. And so I met him and, and his now, his business partner, Max Katzenberg. Um, and like my, I just, Greg introduced me to a woman named Sarah Simmons, who we ended up opening Birds and Bubbles together, which was a fried chicken and champagne restaurant. At Where the, was it? On the Lower East Side, on right. Forsyth, and and that got some good notices. Yeah, it was awesome. You know, it was incredible. I got focus to, on champagne. Yes, you, I got you to know put one of you'll see one of the questions out. I ask is wine and food pairing. Okay, and champagne and fried chicken comes up with a lot of guests. That's All right, so good. you open Birds and Bubbles. Yeah, how long are you doing that? Uh, two years. Okay, what happens? Um, really, just like a change in. Okay. In what we thought the concept should be. You know, it was for me, fried chicken and champagne, lowbrow, highbrow, should be down and dirty with a glass of champagne. And and Chef wanted to have a more elevated restaurant. Oh, okay. And so it was difference just of a opinion. difference of opinion. So what absolutely. happens after that? Um Robbie DeRossi called me. And he Who's kind of a downtown cocktail czar. Yeah. I mean, you know, he multiple places he ideas. He is niche beverage. That man opened single varietal concept bars before do anyone Do you have a did. good feeling in your heart and gut for him still? I do. Okay. Absolutely. Robbie's a good guy. Okay. I mean, you know, we do things differently and I have to imagine that after he's been in this business for such a long time, he knows what the hell he's doing. Yeah. So if you can't learn from a guy like that, right. you know. So forget Ravi, let's talk about you. <laughs> so you go to work for Ravi yeah. and that kind of morphs into how you get going on your own. Yeah, talk about sure. that. So uh, Ravi had a little champagne bar called Riddling Widow. He called me up and he was like, I Cute heard name. that you're available. The best name. Yeah. The problem is that no one knew what the name meant. No. Nobody <laughs> knows, knew what the nobody name knows meant. what riddling is. <laughs> right. So, um, you go to work. Long story short, we end up working together. Um, I'm running this little space and I call it my incubator now because, again, nothing is ever clear to me in the moment. But like two years later, I look back on it and I'm like, oh my God, I was so ahead of myself. I didn't know what I was doing. But I would do these events. Um, we would, I would be open four days a week. It was just me. 
Um, it was a little, what I called shit box for champagne. And I would sell champagne and I would like do these experiential events that would be everything from curating like music and wine to what eventually has become niche niche, what eventually became airs, what eventually became Tokyo record bar. Environment, concept, sharing with people. Okay. So what happens? You, he told me you wanted to sell the business. And with that, and this is a li- literally a little space, a little business, right? Oh yeah, three hundred. So square lucky feet. for you, it's kind of a manageable option. Except that it was attached to a space upstairs that was another place and was operated still by him, which was the Bourgeois Pig. Um, and Ravi wanted to sell everything, and ah. I thought, well, what if I bought it? And he was like, okay, let's talk about Including upstairs? Yep. So, again, I think you can figure anything out if you put your head to it. I had been working on a business model for a long time, just started to put it into play, and that's what eventually turned into Ayers and Tokyo Record Bar. So, Riddling Widow, the space, Mm -hmm. you take it over from Ravi, and that space becomes? Tokyo Record Bar. Tokyo Record Bar before Ayers? Ayers is upstairs. Okay. Ayers is upstairs. All right. So we're going to talk about a few other things, then we're going to get to the venues, all right? I'm I'm curious about a bunch of other things. Um, Answer this one quickly. What was your assessment of the wine and cocktail scene when you got back from uh, wine, champagne, and cocktail scene when you got back from Chicago? In New York? Yeah. You felt the same way, underserved, nobody was thinking champagne or... Oh, I mean... Look, when you go into something that is niche, like when you go into a very specific focus of anything, you have to find your space, your place. And I found nowhere that I felt that I belonged. So that was your mission, but also in looking, nobody was doing it. Yeah. So it may be an easy mission to accomplish. Uh, well, sometimes you, easy, have to, well sometimes you have to ask, is nobody doing it because you shouldn't be doing it, right? Like, right. is nobody doing it because it doesn't work right. or because it's just nobody cares like, and doesn't want to buy that product? And so I think it's a hard thing to forge out on your own and say, well, I care, so I have to do it. I have to make it happen. Right. Um, Important. And luckily, like meeting Sarah and her wanting to open Birds and Bubbles gave me confidence that, oh, someone else is excited about this just as much as I am. Um, Meeting Ravi, because he opened Riddling Widow right after we opened Birds and Bubbles, to me meant, okay, someone else is interested in champagne. So when you opened, you were aware of his place. Absolutely. Um, But neither of them nailed it. Like neither of them were doing it the way I thought that it should be done. It was doable but nobody was doing it. Yeah, and also... You fi- will figure out that you figured it out. I'm not even sure if either of them were vi- vi- viably successful. Right. So that also means, should this be done, right? If no one's buying the product... That could knock you on your ass for a minute. Um, tell me this along the way. I'm always curious about this. Um, was there any disadvantage to being a woman in the business? Did you ever feel that because you were a woman... And there are stories and wine and hospitality in Europe and here. Sure. Did that ever get in the way of your plans or success? Um, Well, nothing's gotten in my way. You won't let it get in your way, but is it something you had to overcome? 
every woman has to overcome everything. More than guys? I mean, that's my point. 100%. I mean, we know this is a tough business and you get shit thrown at you all the time. You got to fight it. But was it harder as a woman? Well, it's why I left Chicago. Because I felt that there was no upward mobility for women there. And I still believe that. Okay, so that's a major thing. More than even New York? 100%. It's a much smaller community, though. Do you think it's changed a little since? Probably. If you've been back? Okay. Probably. I mean, I can't speak to it. That was my own personal experience. Yeah, no, I'm sure you're spot on. (laughs) hate to say it. Um, but. But, you know, there are other people that I met when I was in Chicago who, one of which is someone who speaks out very seriously on this subject, who in Chicago felt very much the same way. Um, I think I think that there are probably countless amounts of moments in my life where I was objectified, talked differently to, treated differently because I was a woman, and the amount that I allowed that to penetrate me and stop me is a very different conversation. Okay. And I think growing up in New York City, when you walk down the street every day and men whistle at you before the age of 13, makes you very prepared for what life is all about. Well, New York gives you a thicker skin. It sure does. Um, (laughs) All right. So let's let's get into this a little. Um, I guess the best way to frame what you're doing is let's talk about the fact that you have a vision for hospitality and what you want to do. Um, and I think it transcends into all of your places. So explain to me sort of your mission or what you're trying to do. And, and I think I'm right that it carries through to each place. It's I not, hope so. Yeah. I mean, the concept is, is similar. So what when you open Tokyo, then Ayers and Nietzsche, what are we trying to do here? My mission, I think, was very different in the beginning than it is now. Um, so the through line of my career up until the moment that we opened Airs was that I kind of was forging my own individual path. And then when you open a space where you employ a lot of people, um, I employ specifically a lot of women. Um, my spaces are about 75% women operated. Um, everything changes. And Ayers was my learning curve where I naively wanted to do something, which was create an environment for women where they could grow and thrive while doing something that, of course, I loved, which was selling as much champagne as possible. Was that blatant? (laughs) 100%. No, was the women thing. (laughs) Yes. You walk into my space. Not not (laughs) notice, but the way you promoted it. It was. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a very female-driven space. Um, that wasn't the selling point. That wasn't like my marketing tool. Okay, so that answers, but, two answers. There. But it was a part of the story, um, and it's a part of the story that I'm very proud of. And when we first opened, God, we could talk, like, we could talk for hours just what on... What did I tell you? You know, but um, so when we first opened, I wanted to have a space that was all women. Um, that didn't happen because in the kitchen... It was very hard for me to find a female chef, and thank God I found the chef that I have now who's still with me today, Chef Zach Fabian, who's amazing and a godsend. Um, but be, I think you need that balance. <laughs> you need you need a little male-female ratio. Um, and he, he brought in his <laughs> team, um, who are two guys who are also wonderful. Um, but yeah, we had 
um, women in our space who didn't identify as women. We had women from different ethnic backgrounds. We had women from different um, ex- like upbringings and different experiences. And it really taught me that the female experience is something that is so untapped and so unexplored, even by women amongst women. And I realized everything that I knew about how to communicate was not going to work in our space. Everything that I knew about how I'd been managed up until that point wasn't going to work in our space. Everything that I knew about leadership wasn't going to work. So I had to change everything um, and learn to communicate differently, learn how I wanted to um, believe as a whole about how our spaces were run. Um, And amongst that, my mother passed away. All right, we'll talk you kind of had to shed the way you were doing it and the way you were taught, realizing that's not right and figure out. It wasn't right for me. And it wasn't right for the place that I was creating. Right. We're only talking about you and your places. <laughs> so well, it's what... because the thing is, is that everything that I do in my spaces, I cannot say that you can just pick that up and do in your own space. And sometimes people will come to me and be like, how do you sell champagne at a one-time markup? How do you like, how does your business model work? How does all that stuff, you know? And the fact That's is- That's a fair point. It's all, it's all connected to this thing this thing, this place, these people, and what we do. And so when you asked, you know, what is your mission? My mission is very different now than when I started because when I opened, the only thing that I wanted to do is sell more champagne than anyone's ever sold before in New York City. Right? That was my goal. Right. And, I, but, and we but do that. But the, the <laughs> mission has been clarified on both ends. But now, the only that, thing... That's I- your business mission and, you know, how you wanted the business. I think you're pretty clear about that. What about on the other side? What's the customer well, now, supposed to the thing get from all of that? That I want to do is create a place where top down everybody feels like they have a say and they're a part of the process. And because of that, it empowers and gives respect to the people that work in my establishment to then go forth and give love and respect to our guests. And that's the thing that I think is missing in dining in general is that hospitality is a mentality where you genuinely have to love to take care of people and show them respect. And when they come into our space, they should feel like they're coming into our home. And we treat them in that way. And so everything that comes from our decision-making process comes from that first. And that is why I think people find that there's a through line in our spaces that is unique and special is at one point I just wanted to offer people something that was affordable, approachable, and accessible, right? That was like my pillars. And fun. And fun. But fun is just the overlying of everything, right? right? Yes, you're very, you're very correct. Fun. Fun. Um, But now that is just what we do, but how we do it is from this place of of welcoming, of warmth, of you know, of kindness, I of th- empathy. I think when your employees are happy, they buy in. Um, you pay attention to them. That transcends to the customer. I think somebody who does it well, I think he still does it well, is Danny Meyer. I don't know how much he practices, but take care of your employees even before the customer. I think a lot of that changed with 
with tip included, with hospitality yeah. included. Yeah, I mean, that's but, but, but the initial but, concept. Yes, of course. But you're, you're right about, you know, getting everyone involved. Um, listen, we have to take a quick break. Um, we will continue to talk about the mission, but I also want to get into... Um, you know, the individual places and the stories behind them. We're talking to Ariel Arce. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Ariel Arce. Ariel is the proprietor of Tokyo Record Bar, um, Air Champagne Parlor, Niche Niche, and soon to open special bar? Club. Special club. <laughs> I have some special kind bar. of I have some <laughs> mental block with that, but we'll get to that. Um, all right, so let's, let's uh, talk about now implementing the actual places. Um, so you had said before when you, you took Ravi's place over, you opened Tokyo Record Bar first? No, second. Second. Ayers was open first. Ayers was open yes. first. Okay. Um, so the inspiration for Ayers was really to follow through on your yeah. love. And... W- did you know by them what you had to do that was a little different? I mean, we've been talking about it, but was it selection? We talked about environment and yeah. the mission. Yeah, I mean, I wanted it to be a space where, um, you know, again, that women felt very comfortable. So Riddling Widow had been this, like, dark black bordello in a basement. And so as the champagne was moving up a floor and it was moving to a space that had light and it was bright and higher ceilings, like I just completely 180'd the aesthetic. And I wanted, again, champagne to be affordable and approachable. So, Which has always been important to you. Always. <clears throat> because I mean, I'm every, my own customer. I'm a cheap you, Jewish girl from New York. I want a deal. I want loans. Everything Lomans. you serve, you know, markup-wise or... Yes. It's an incentive to actually buy good stuff or drink more. Yes. Which, which you know, covers, you know, well, all, my, all your places. My feeling is that if you know wine 
and you see our prices, you go, oh shit, this is a great price. And if you don't know anything about wine and you see our prices, you go, this doesn't feel that expensive. I can afford this. And you get to taste great stuff at a reasonable price. I'm just curious, what if like a guy walked in at the beginning when you had this clear mission? I mean, did you throw him out? Were you you really (laughs) cold to him? Sounds so exclusive. No, we have some of our best regulars are just like single guys that sit at the bar and hang out. Like we no, I think first of all. I think a man who's very comfortable with himself feels very comfortable in our space. No and doubt. we have so many people that are on dates. We have so many people that are there to celebrate. We have so many people who just landed a big deal. We have groups of guys that come in. Don't make all it all time. celebratory. That's not what champagne's about. It's not. But the fact is, is it's part of the marking that's been drilled into our minds right. for the last hundred years. So to, to say that I'm going to change that overnight is impossible. Right. I've been trying to do this for eight years years. People today are like, I'm going to have an all champagne list and people are going to come and have dinner and just drink champagne all night. And maybe some guests will. And I kind of am like, I've been fighting for people to do that for so long. And now you get to enjoy the benefits of that. But I'm also still going to be that space when you call yourself a champagne bar, but a group of 10 women are going to come in and be like, we want to have a bachelorette party here. And we're going to give you that too. With the sash and the thing. Absolutely. But here's something cool that you do and tell people. What what goes well with champagne? Caviar? Oysters? French fries, grilled cheese. Now, you, you have food at Ayers. Yes. You have caviar, you have oysters. We do. Your caviar is like crazy priced. Yeah. Again, another incentive to enjoy, right? Yeah. It's not about, it's about getting it out there to enjoy, make a little money. For sure. I mean, I also believe that you should, and this is like me not trusting myself, but I believe that you should build businesses for as little money as possible so that you don't have a huge investment that you have to pay back so that you can actually sell products for a very fair price and not work in investment capital into the price of your product so that nobody can ever enjoy it so that your business doesn't stay in business long enough for you to pay back your investment. Right. We're talking about (laughs) decorating and inventory and not too much personnel and all of that. I agree with that. We're sitting in this very cool (laughs) wine room at Niche Niche. The room speaks for itself. I mean, you don't have to do anything. You got a rack here that's nice with some killer wine from one end of the room to the other. Right? You know, that's the investment. It's not crazy, you know, wall to ceiling and all that. That's that's a good business plan. So for me, you know, I much prefer for my guest at the end of the day, the only money that you make in a restaurant is off of the product that you sell. You don't make money off of the decorations on the walls or the chandelier that's hanging or the glass that somebody holds. In fact, someone's just going to break that glass. So if someone falls in love with the product that you sell, then you have a good product that they're going to come back for. I so agree, and kudos to you. That's you know where you succeed by creating you know, that buzz in that environment and delivering, you know, the real goods. The only other thing that someone is going to buy into is energy. 
And if there's good energy in that's, a room, to me, that's part of, you, you know, know, like you, you yourself bring energy and, <laughs> you know, it transcends. And, you know, let's remind people how big is Air Champagne? I mean, the space is very small. Right. So it's, it's very intimate. Yeah. You know, it's when like you get there. 800 square feet. Yeah. Um, it's it probably eight, smaller than this one cellar eight, that we're 18, in. 20 seats and all that. All right. So that's Air's. There's a space above it. Below it. Below it. Which is Tokyo. Tokyo. How long was Ayers open before you opened Tokyo? A month and a half. So pretty much right away. So we'd work by day, we'd build by day, and then we'd serve champagne by night. That's it? Yeah. All right, so tell me about Tokyo Record Bar. So Tokyo Record Bar was was the moment I got my confidence because Tokyo Record Bar... From Ayers? Or from just being in out there? life, I think. Okay. It was the first time I did... Something s- you ate or drank? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just hit you? It was the first time that I did something that actually hit. You know, you throw a lot of shit against the wall, you see what sticks, this one stuck. So, airs, I think we will... Open. Airs stuck? No. 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 Tokyo stuck? Yeah. But because airs is a long But that's con. post. I mean, what's the reason you open it and how do you know it's going to stick? Because from the moment we opened Tokyo Record Park, people just fell in love. People didn't fall in love with Ayers immediately. So you got to do it to know and look at people's faces. And I've been changing and evolving Ayers and will change and evolve Ayers forever because champagne is an ever-growing and changing idea. And right now we're in that moment. It gives you some leeway, too. For sure. Um, Tokyo Record Bar explain is a what it concept. is. Explain the concept. <laughs> it's a concept. Explain that. Um, it's a seated experience where you come in for two hours. Twenty-two people sit down at once in a room that is three hundred square feet. <laughs> you get no choice in anything except for your beverages and a song. So when you sit down, no choice in food. No, it's a seven-course omakase. It's fifty bucks. And Reasonable which is very reasonable. Um, And you get a wine list, basically, of vinyl music. And it's organized by decade. And the only thing that you have to do is pick a song. And everybody in the room gets a pencil and a piece of paper (laughs) and they hand in a song to a DJ who in real time creates a playlist over that two-hour dining experience. Live DJ. Live DJ that is all of the guests in the room's song selections. And you order sake, or you order champagne, or you order cocktails, or you order Japanese beer, and you just hang out in this room with your peers. And you get to know people, or you don't get to know people, and you eat food, and you have a good time. Well, what happens most of the time? You get to know people. People get up and dance. They, yeah, like, I mean, make out. You got out. a little uh, like, spirits make in you and all of that. It's so special. So how long has Tokyo been around? Well, Ayers will be two years in June, and then Tokyo will be two years in August. So, and, yeah. and the feel, the vibe is still fresh? It's Like if we went tonight, yeah. we would feel that, ah, like the first week? Yeah, like I can't even get a reservation there, but when I do every time, I'm just like more and more proud. So what do people do if they want to go there? It's hard to get into, right? It is. But not because it's exclusive, just because it's small. Right. right. Which are all your places. Um, are you on any platform? Are you on Resi? Yeah, we're on Resi. Okay. So yeah, that's, people, how we, that's how you book. If people want to you know, know about that. So Tokyo's going, uh, Tokyo's going well. strong as ever. Yes. So that leads you to our next and current project, Niche Niche. Correct. Now... 
So Tokyo is a couple of years mm-hmm. old. When does the niche niche thing develop? So I don't mean to like go back to this moment, but I did say that my mother passed away. Yes. And that was a, an, an altering moment for me as a business professional and personally, because I pretty much had to just say, I'm not going to come into work to this business that's only six months old. Where were you? You had heirs in Tokyo at that point. Yeah. So you had two viable businesses. Yes. You get this life-changing thing yes. and continue. You go on and say, listen, I'm backing away a little. Well, I just had to be like, I'm not going to come in to work for a little while. And I don't know how long that's going to be. Um, <clears throat> and in that time, my my team really rose to the challenge in a way that I never thought anything could be possible. No coincidence. I mean, based on how you set your businesses up. I think the, a large part of my philosophy, though, now happened because of that experience. I don't think I, I know that I did not speak, think, or f- talk about my businesses this way before that experience. Um, And the empathy that I got shown from people who I paid checks to was life-altering. I mean, it really became a family. And that was a huge change. Lucky, no guarantees for that. I mean, again, I told you I was lucky at the beginning of this. Yeah, Um, at the right time, too. So... At that moment, when I kind of came back to work, I, t- I took a couple wine trips at that time. You know, I, w- I went to Champagne. Just to get away and do yeah, different things. Yeah, just to kind of, I had the opportunities Was that there. your first time in Champagne? No, no, no. I've been to Champagne a solid But tell everyone you opened times. Tokyo Record Bar and went to Tokyo after. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know. post inspiration. Had to be part of my original story, Th- which that's was. That's another show. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't done All that right, yet. All right. So you pull away from everything. Yeah. Because your mom. Yeah. And then I came back, and pretty soon it was clear that I didn't have a job there. Like before, everything was running. It was running, and before <laughs> that, you know, I would be a name on the schedule. I would work shifts. I would do whatever needed to be done. And then after that, it was kind of like, okay, now I'm doing payroll and I'm doing inventory, but like you don't need me in the way that like I felt needed before. Did that? Make you happy, unnerve you a little, no, put you out of sorts. You felt good about ever. the fact. I was like, "Whoa, this is so incredible!" Um, and but incredible in the proud sense, like, yes. I got the right people. They're doing the right yes. thing. I feel good about them. I feel good about me. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a high that I don't think I've ever felt before, um, and so it gave me the freedom to just. A, start being a guest in my spaces, to be there at night but sit at the bar and talk to people and talk to my staff and, you know, be a part of the experience rather than leading it. Was that important? Like at that time that helped the environment and you being around? I I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you really weren't doing it before. Your head was down. No. And I've never done that before. I mean, I still know chefs and people who own businesses who have never sat down in their own spaces. It's not a bad thing to open your eyes. No, it's really essential. And it's essential to kind of see how people interact and see how your guests interact and to feel the energy in your place. And Um, I got the ability to do that and, again, had some more free time. And I'm not really good with free time. So I started (laughs) just my mind starts going. And and Niche Niche was kind of this idea that a girlfriend of mine and I had as a joke. We were laughing and joking about 
you know, wine is so niche. Let's open a bar called Niche Niche. Like, it's not niche, it's niche, niche. It's the nichest of niche. Right. <laughs> so, like, we were joking about this idea, but at the same time, But there's I was a like, concept that follows that. It's niche, but what's the concept for well, your niche niche? For me, it was like, I would love to open this wine bar space that is a community, that is this world of wine, but I'm not leading it. I'm a part of it. And I don't really feel that if I were to open a wine bar, Ariel Arce's wine bar, that that would be anything to write home about. Airs was something that I could do because champagne was my life. But wine, the world of wine is not. But it's something that I love. And it's something that I love to enjoy as, as a consumer. And so I wanted to create a place where I could invite you into my home. I could give you this feeling of being included in a non-passive experience. I could put wine at the forefront, but I didn't have to lead it. And that's where this idea that we could kind of crowdsource our network of all of these incredible wine professionals, relationships that we had cultivated over the last, you know, essentially decade of working in this business, bring everybody together, learn from them, and create an environment where guests got to learn from them as well, too. But get more specific. Your Every night monthly of schedule, yeah. you have basically this party or event every night, yeah. but somebody leads it. Yes. So every night of the week, we invite in a different wine professional from anywhere. Every aspect. Every Distributor, aspect. Sommelier, winemaker. But not just New York as well, too. Right. So all over the country, hopefully eventually the world. We haven't had somebody from across the pond yet, but we you hope are, to. Oh, actually, yes, of What's his name from... Champagne uh, producers, wine producers. I'm um, sorry. Moulin Event. Who, oh, yeah. They're right. here on um, right. on Monday. Yeah, so... Um, but, yeah, so... Um, so that, you have a different guest every night. Um, you have a limited you know, customer base. We have limited. 40 seats. 40 so seats. So this is by far the, the largest. Right. Look at you going um, crazy here. We have 40 seats and what's we the task of the guest? The, the, to pick four wines that they are really into right now. Their wines. Nope. Your, if you make wine, you're only allowed to show one wine okay. that you make. If you sell wine, you're only allowed to choose one wine from your portfolio and it's all about showing a different perspective of wine every night of the week. And then my chefs will take those wine selections with, of course, my help. Pre-plan and, and look at the list. we will <clears throat> comprise a dinner based on those selections. Dinner is $40. The tasting is $40. You can come for both. Obviously, that's what we want you to do. Um, but you can also just come for the tasting. You cannot just come for dinner. Okay. Wine is always first. Okay. And you have... Your well, March just ended, so you have yeah. a full April schedule. We did our first month. Is it month. another hard thing to get into? Totally. Okay. Well, I why would you do say hard anything things. else? Um, but no, it's incredible. I mean, the amount of response that we got from our community of people that agreed to do this with us is unbelievable. I mean, before we started having this conversation, you mentioned a couple of people that have been on your podcast, all of which are on our calendar. Right. Like it's, it's amazing to me that people who either I know 
or don't know very well, we're like, we're totally down to do something like this. Wine people like to talk about wine. Wine people <laughs> like to do wine things. That's why I'm doing a wine show, not a fishing <laughs> show. You talk to a guy about fishing, he's done in 12 minutes. You sure. talk to people about wine, it's like blah, blah, blah. Um, sure. I'm curious we like about... like to justify our profession. <laughs> I'm curious about this, and you know, I try not to be negative at all, and it's not a negative question, but you're the perfect... Are these concepts sustainable you don't know or these are things you do until they don't feel right and your mind i know is always moving and you have another idea i mean because these are these are pretty cool unique ideas you know they could last for 20 years you know maybe people get tired and too what do you you know what do you think about that I think the only thing I can know is that I'm willing to be flexible. So if something starts to not work or I can feel that it's not working, I'm willing to look at it, change it, alter it, be flexible to it. Um, No fear of that. No. It's like, oh my God, nobody gives a shit about errors. What do I do? You'll see it coming. I've so many times in my life that to fear that someone doesn't care about what you're doing is a waste of time these days to me good point so rather than wasting my time worrying about nobody cares about what i'm doing which let me tell you i have wasted a lot of time (laughs) thinking about that i'm much more interested in thinking about well what are they coming for or what do they like or what do people want and so i'd much rather give you what you want than give you what i think you want and that's i think that's that's a lot of what comes out of that moment of sitting in your own space and seeing what are people ordering what are they drinking what are they doing and like be perceptive you have to be right um we got to wrap up pretty soon um, but I want to ask you one more question, then I want to subject you to our wine list. I'm just curious, you, Ariel, your drink of choice. Is it champagne? Is it a spirit? Is it wine? Is it all of the above? If it's all of the above, where's the skew? Yeah. I'm, are you experimental? I mean, what do you like? I'm not experimental. I drink a tequila gimlet. Okay. And I drink excellent champagne all the time. With a little white burgundy mixed in there. (laughs) On your own and on the premises, don't. I don't get an opportunity to drink that much, but when I do and I'm with friends, a lot of them are not wine professionals, so they do enjoy a great bottle of wine, but we're often drinking a cocktail, and I'm not experimental there. (laughs) I don't blame you. So Nietzsche Nietzsche, you got a great winemaker, a great psalm. He's picked four, you know, killer unique bottles because these are the guys who should be. Are Absolutely. you tasting everything every night? Oh my god! Oh, okay. Of course. Okay. Oh, the whole point of this is so I can learn. This okay. is, was my way to learn through getting paid to learn. All right, one more question, and you got to answer this in a very short manner because we could do a whole show on this. Oh no! Can you do what you're doing without social media? Do you think? Uh, well, my social, my social media presence is not that big. Okay. If you actually look at our accounts, we have like no more than 4,000 followers on each of our accounts. I'm sure they're pretty responsive. So it's sort of a mixed answer. It's a mixed answer. What I don't think I could do now is not have my newsletter, which we don't abuse and we don't use that often, but we do have a very loyal following to that. I would think. And so when we send things out, 
as like a, a news blast of something that we're doing or a new place that we're opening. The feedback from that is really incredible. Social media, I think, hot take is like no, if, interesting. You, if you've mastered how to use it, it's an incredible tool. I have not. Like I said, we could do a whole show. I think the concepts speak for themselves. I think you've built up, you know, a strong following. You'd be surprised of the 4,000. The yeah. response rate from those guys is probably higher. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I stress out about it all the time. It takes a lot of my time and my energy. The social media the part? The social media part. I spend a lot of time, like, doing these beautiful photo shoots with a photographer that I love working with. And we, like pit things in very unique ways and we like position champagne in uh, ways that you don't often see it and like hey nobody cares I just dropped something <laughs> um, um, nobody really cares like they look at the picture they like it yeah. whatever I don't know if they come in for it half the time like for me, my business is not directly connected to social media. It's interesting because it, it's a very... But maybe if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, no, please no, no. tweet these are or, all... t- or, or at sign us and tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> no, but these are all compliments. You know, the concepts are very hip. They're very buzzy in a good way. They're unique. We're a word of mouth the, the, business. Right. So it's a social media darling thing, but it's not necessary. The word of mouth, I mean, you deliver the goods. All right, like I said, we could do another show on that. All right, we're going to move on to our wine list. I asked all my guests the five same questions. We post everything on our social media. Social media. Cool, cool. Um, so we will do uh, your wine list. We'll post it on Instagram, Facebook, and wherever else. All right, so here's the five questions. The first question is, what are you drinking now? We may have broached that a little, but are you tasting stuff seasonally? Are you tasting stuff for um, the restaurants? Uh, I'm tasting every single day four different wines chosen by the best people in this community. So it's always a vast kind of... Yeah. It's not like, oh, it's warm, so I'm drinking rosé answer. No, not for me. I mean, I'm drinking champagne all year round. Um, Right now, I'm, I'm really trying to shift my focus to being incredibly open-minded towards regions that I have never explored before. So that's part of the answer. Give me one or two regions that you feel you don't have the exposure. I feel I'm heavily lacking in Italy, um, which has been really Barolo and Tuscany? I mean, Piedmont and Tuscany? We just did a dinner the other night with Ryan Looper from Tiedwards, where we did Alto Piemonte, and he did four... Which is a very hot region. Yeah, and he did four... Um, just 100% Nebbiolos where we tasted different, you know, regions that are essentially two seconds away from each other. Um, And I think that that's a really beautiful, comprehensive look on one very specific region um, that A, consumers don't ever get to experience, professionals do. Um, So that is what we do here, not every night, but that's an example of something that we do here. Um, On the other hand, you know, Dustin Wilson came in and chose um, a Samour Blanc that was mind-blowing from a small producer that eventually will probably explode that nobody knows about right now. And I, I should I, hope so. The guy's a master sommelier <laughs> and owns one of the best wine stores. If he can't come with like a rocket sure. bottle. For sure. But you know what? But they it's weren't so wines, memorable to you. They weren't wines that were challenging wines. They were just beautiful wines. Right. And there are people Good that will point. come here and choose wines beautiful works that are challenging, wines that are about practice rather than 
you know, product. And for me, I have a classical palate. I drink champagne for a living. So for Not me, when I get the opportunity to taste with people who have these incredible palates, that to me is when I'm like, oh, this is the eye-opening moment where I'm exploring something that I didn't know before. All right, next question. Got it. We talked about food. We talked about... Um, Wine. Give me your favorite wine and food pairing or favorite champagne and food pairing, but give me something, you know, that resonates. Um, it's pizza. <laughs> it's pizza it? with everything. So pizza's the food. Pizza's the food. And does champagne go well with pizza? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I like that. <laughs> what about non-champagne and pizza? Um, I'd probably go light body red. Okay. Like a nice frappato. Okay. See, I love that answer. <laughs> All right. I know you don't get out a lot, but do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? Let's stay in New York. That, like this place, has the knowledge, the selection, the vibe, people that are into it. Um, I don't want you to be exclusive, feel like you left someone out or whatever, but. Are there places you would go to because they're doing it well or you don't have time to get out? No, there are so many that are doing it well. Um, not to, like, throw bone to the place that, like, everybody already knows, but I really do love the people from Delicious Hospitality. So okay. Charlie Bird, Pasquale Jones, Legacy Records. Comes up a lot. Yeah, I mean... I mean, a great one. I had Arvid Rosengren on the show last week. He was, you know, the guy knows what he's doing. That right? guy knows what he's doing. World's best sommelier. Yeah, I mean, Parcel, like what they're doing Christine over at Parcel. Christine was on this show. Christine's selection is phenomenal. Grant's palette is incredible. Um, I mean, That's, sometimes people are just say no more. called the best because they're really no, good at what no they more. do. I mean, Charlie yeah. Bird's wine list is not large, but it kind of hits all the notes. And that's not an easy... One of the questions we asked our guests, what's harder? But James O'Brien tonight, who's coming from Papina, if you've looked at his wine Incredible. list, he, I think, is Just because you said delicious doesn't mean there's not other guys. And right. Papina is a great example of one of the many. Well, I just think that... It's really funny. Before we opened... Any of the places we I used to do an event called Baller Bubbles and Chris McDade and James did a night with me. We didn't even know each other. We got like linked up together. It was before they opened Papina, um, and we like didn't know each other's philosophies at all about anything. But then they opened Papina and they were doing Southern food mixed with Italian food and with <laughs> a wine list that was like a one time markup. And he has like the craziest selection of stuff. And so for me, I'm just like that's a place that's like really taking a risk. And I think that like risks are really important. I agree. Um, so I agree. Yeah, I mean, so those are all there's a million terrific places, answers. Sure. And to your point, there's a, all right. Do you does Ariel Arce have a favorite all time wine? If it's not one, two, um, it doesn't have to be the most expensive, the rare. A lot of times, it's become the experience. Yeah. Is there anything that comes to your mind? Um, I have like a life-changing wine. That's that's sort of the question. What which, is it? And it is incredibly expensive. In fact, it's, I think so, it's priceless. <laughs> doesn't matter. What is it and why? Um, it was the first the first time I ever went to Champagne. It was my very first visit was at Charles Heidzik. Okay. Um, and I got this very rare experience of connecting with the woman who was showing us around. Her name was Sophie. Um, I was 24 and I was with my mom. 
and she brought us into the Enotech. And I don't know what it was about us, but we forged a connection that day that has stayed until this day. And she said to me, you can pick anything you want. And the seller of Charles Heidzik is special, to say the least. And so at that point in my career, I just had absolutely no clue what to do. I didn't know anything about older vintages than me. And, Interesting. And she, you know, I stood there just like jaw dropped and was like, I can choose anything. And she just said yes. And I was like, I don't know, you choose. And right. so she's like, well, most people would say, because Champagne Charlie is a very special um like subsect of wine that has been made where there's only five vintages that have ever been made. Um, and some of them don't really exist anymore. And so she was like, out of Champagne Charlie, 85 is considered to be the heralded vintage, but my favorite is 83. I said, so, okay, so we'll drink 83. Let's so go. she takes it out and, you know, they disgorge it on site and we drink this ethereal bottle of wine. And then as we leave, she says, for your mother, take home the 85. Wow. So two, two and one. Um, but wow. I think that was the first time I, first of all, it was the first time I ever t- tasted champagne that old. It was champagne that I tasted that had just been freshly, freshly disgorged like that. So to experience very old wine that still tasted very young um, was unbelievable. And I think 83, at, to me, is a very special vintage that is not considered to be a very special vintage. And it shows how the region of Champagne really does deserve to be analyzed year to year, good vintage to not good vintage. It's really just about understanding terroir and environment and production. That's how you answer that question, okay? (laughs) Um, Last question, and you should be able to handle this. Give me your recommendation for the best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail. I say this over and over. My kids are going to parties. Mm-hmm. They don't want to look like an asshole and spend mm-hmm. nine, 10 bucks. They're not dropping 40, 45. Mm-hmm. So for 15, 18, 20 bucks, what's good, interesting that they could bring? You could do a, a region like Muscadet, a grape. You could be specific. Yeah. Give me a couple of recos one red, one white. Oh, we're not doing sparkling? Your kids uh, aren't drinking sparkling? So, <laughs> duh, dumb me. Red, white, sparkler. Red, white, sparkler. Well, well one we'll thing we didn't talk about is besides champagne, there's a whole world of sparkling wine, which you and yeah. I could do another show. But you'll probably go sparkling on this answer. I will. Um, I think two options within there. I would either do Portuguese or I would do Clement, which is just French right. sparkling wine. C-R-E-M-A-N-T. Yeah. Cremant. C-R-E-M-A-N-T. What's We're Portuguese? Sparkling? Um, sparkling as well, too. I was just in Portugal over um, December. Yeah, Portugal. there's some amazing Portuguese sparklings that are coming out of there. Whether In that price range. Yeah, whether they're like pet, pet nuts or, right. or whether they're actually method champenois. Um, so that's your sparkler. Give me a red. For reds? Um... Well, I'll do white. I think do I'm white. in, in love with Erbaluche from Alto Piemonte. Okay, so Alto Piemonte. Look, I'm falling in love with Italy. I'm like, what's what, happening what to me? Did you say the maker, the grape? Just the grape. Spell it for us. Oh, God, I'm the worst speller. Give it our best shot. E-R-B-A-L-U-C-E. All right, I'll spell check everything. That's why I'm posting it on media. Erbaluche. Yes. Okay, that's the white. That's the white. And for red, 
tougher. Gamay. I'm with you, sister. Come on. Gamay, just a village, I mean, you know. just Gamay. Okay. Like, I mean, we have a selection right now that's like, have it chilled, have it not chilled. This is a Gamay's wine having that a runs mo- a spectrum. Gamay's having a good moment right now. It really is. I'm I mean, very it's happy a little about different that. for me than Chenin Blanc, where like everybody is so hyped on Chenin right now, where I just see within the spectrum, there's so many different styles, but like I have a very specific appreciation for one particular style within it, where Gamay, I have... The whole spectrum. You can give me light and bright. You can give me rich and dense. You can give me something chilled. You can give me something lukewarm. I don't care. And there's it's enough makers and the 10 crews or whatever. That's a great choice. And there is stuff in there. Remember the original question, 15, 20 bucks. Right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. You could probably buy one Admirable here job <laughs> on that. Like I said, we will post Ariel's um, answers. I will spell check and I will list everything um, within the next week. Um, I'm sorry to say we have to wrap up. I'm so I, I broke my rule and we went way over my time. I'm so sorry. But I'll so figure sorry. it. No, no, no. I'm happy for that. <laughs> Um, let me just wrap up, and we'll finish up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. We'll post the wine list. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at, at benruby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. You can also subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Um, I repeat, we'll post Ariel's wine list um, on all our social media sites. Ariel, if we want to find more about you and probably your places, what's the best thing to do? Each individual place? So my personal is RC Cool. A R C E C O O L. That's Ariel. That's her personal, and you could see her comings and going. She was just in Japan. Now, what about the businesses? Air Champagne. A I R S. Apostrophe S? Or no, nope. not, okay. A I R S C H A M P A G N E. Tokyo Record Bar. S. Tokyo Record Bar. Right. And Niche Niche, which is N I C H E N I C H E N Y C. And they all have their own sites. Yeah. And Special Club is eventually Special okay. Club NYC. Special Club is. You'll hear more about it. It's in the same building as Niche Niche, the way Tokyo Record Bar and airs. So if you follow Ariel, you'll uh, find out more about that. Um, That's it for us. I want to thank our guest, Ariel Arce. Thanks to our engineers at Heritage Radio. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.